Welcome to the Mindful Fire Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast. My dad will be so grateful. See you next time on the Mindful Fire Podcast. Welcome to the Mindful Fire Podcast, a show about crafting a life you love and making work optional using the tools of mindfulness, envisioning, and financial independence. I'm your host, Adam Cuello, and I'm so glad you're here. Each episode of the Mindful Fire podcast explores these three tools through teachings, guided meditations, and inspiring interviews with people actually living them to craft a life they love. Today's episode is what I call a Mindful Fire Spark, a mini episode pulled from one of our most popular episodes. To listen to the full episode, just click the link in the show notes wherever you're listening to this. At its core, Mindful Fire is about creating more awareness and choice in your life. Mindfulness helps you develop self-awareness to know yourself better and what's most important to you by practicing a kind, curious awareness. Envisioning is all about choosing to think big about your life and putting the power of your predicting brain to work to create the life you dream of. And financial independence brings awareness and choice to your financial life, empowering you to make your vision a reality by getting your money sorted out and ultimately making work optional. And here's the best part. You don't have to wait until you reach financial independence to live out your vision. Mindful Fire is about using these tools to craft that life now on the path to financial independence and beyond. If you're ready to start your Mindful Fire journey, go to mindfulfire.org start and download my free envisioning guide. In just 10 minutes, this guide will help you craft a clear and inspiring vision for your life. Again, you can download it for free at mindfulfire.org start. Let's jump into today's Mindful Fire Spark. So Jonathan, you mentioned at the beginning, you found this practice when you were a little bit depressed after college, and it sounds like it helped you to move forward and to bring more mindfulness into your work and your interactions with others. And so I know that's a lot of the work that you do now. And for people who maybe don't have a regular practice or are just curious, what are the benefits of practicing mindfulness and showing up with more mindfulness in your workday and with your colleagues? Well, in short, I think it makes us more responsive, more available to input, and then more in control as far as choice. I've seen a lot of definitions of mindfulness or being mindful. And for me, there's a piece that I think is missing from a lot of those definitions, and that's the sustained attention. Anybody can be awake and aware for an instant, and that's really great. Continuity is the end game or the part of the process that I think is really important to develop is over time, can you build it so it's smooth across experiences in a way that is non-disruptive? And, and the, the impacts of that are infinitely reaching. But again, I think it, it makes us more conscious of our choices. It gives us a space to make those choices in difficult situations but it also makes us more relational. I'm really mindful life, mindful work in our team. We're really relationship experts more than like any sort of business savvy. We have that and people have that experience. But I think our impact is because 
we're sensitive to things like psychological safety, to different perspectives, and to how this actually plays out in a workplace culture and in systemic thinking, because that's where things get complex is it's one thing when you're relating to yourself. It's another thing when you're relating to one other person. What about when you're relating to 15,000 people? How does that actually get managed and played out in a way that both honors the differences, but then also aligns to a common goal or a mission that a company may have? And I think you know, mindfulness serves really well on all those fronts, because again, there's a certain practice or certain result from practice that we take things less personally, there's a little less ego involved. And because of that, we're really more interested in finding out what's useful and helpful. So there's a pragmatic or a pragmatism about mindful practice that I think is, again, just totally invaluable, can't be understated, can't always be quantified. That's one of the difficult things for the rational mind. They want numbers and like how much impact. There's some data coming out, of course, around that. But I, I think in the feeling tone and like most of it's anecdotal at this point, most of it's, oh, we did this thing. And now two years later, we can see that attrition is way down and that people are happier and we're getting less terrible re Yelp reviews or whatever the case may be. A lot of that sort of is going to take time and is more longitudinal in nature. But it's really, it's all pervasive. And I can say that in my own life. It's just, it's changed my body physically. Like it's changed my relationships. It's changed how I care for the environment. It's changed how I leverage my value in business situations and how I negotiate. All of those things have been impacted. Yeah, there's a lot there. I like that uh, negotiating one. That's definitely put a pin in that. One thing that you said there really stood out to me and that we take things less personally. And the way I think about it is that we're creating a little bit of space between the stimulus and the response, right? Like the famous quote that attributed to Viktor Frankl, between stimulus and response, there's a space in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And for me, that's what it all comes back to. It's subtle, but it's really important that when we practice mindfulness, we start to see our experience a little bit more objectively. We're not as in it. And we have that space to see, oh, like there's that thought again. I don't need to believe that thought. For me, that's been a lot of the benefit at work, right? I used to get really caught up in these stories about I can't believe it's going this way. We're having another reorg and this and that and trying to make things happen and running into walls. But the more I started to observe my own thoughts and my own feelings, both on the cushion, but also in real time, the more I was able to say, like, detach myself a little bit from that. And that just led to more ease and just ability to do the job and not be bringing all this extra stuff with me that that gets really heavy after a time. And so I think that's a really powerful thing that you called out there. I think it's essential. And, and, and I think part of what you're naming is acceptance, right? When we see clearly, we can accept. And the fear around acceptance is often if I accept it, it means I'm not working to change it. I've let it be as it is. But no, we need to accept what's true in order to work effectively within whatever the rules of that situation are. And I think mindfulness gives us, like you said, and I think you hit the nail on the head, that space to be non-reactive and to really deliberately choose. There's a saying in psychotherapeutic circles that the reason your family can push your buttons is because they're the ones that installed them. And so what happens is in a system like a family, things arise and nobody's doing it deliberately or maliciously, but a hand moves and it pushes a button on your shoulder. And that's just how it works. Every time they say that word, the button gets pushed and you do the thing. And I think the moment that we pause, the moment that we say, I'm going to practice non-reactivity, and it might be not scratching an itch when you're meditating. 
It might be pausing just for a moment and taking three deep breaths, like mom used to say. It's those gaps that let us then say, okay, I've sort of let the wave of intensity flow through. Now what? Do I still want to do the thing? And often we can't help ourselves, of course. Like it takes time to disengage, but it's a practice. If you pause one moment, and then the next time you pause two moments, you have that many more moments to potentially choose otherwise. And otherwise, we are in a deterministic world where it's just billiard balls. And we want to be in a world where there's free choice. And so mindfulness is a vehicle to help cultivate that for sure. Yeah, it's so true. They installed the buttons, right? They pushed <laughs> the buttons because they installed the buttons. It never fails. It really doesn't. And I notice myself doing that with my son as well. It's like, where did I learn these things? And the strategies that I have, I you know, joke, it's like basically bribes, lies, and threats. That's what I, those are my strategies. So I need some better ones. They just don't work. And, but I notice myself going to them again and again. And it makes such a difference when I can catch myself. And it's also, I went to a retreat a couple of years ago with John Kabat-Zinn and I was like, it was right before my son was born. And I was like, it was another one of those, everything aligned and it just worked out perfectly because I didn't think I was able to go. But it all worked out. And I was saying that in the public forum to everyone. And I was saying I was going to have a kid. And he's like, oh, wow, you got yourself a little Zen teacher because they are going to expose everything you think, but haven't really fully learned yet. And it's just such the case. It's like, I know that I want to create space between the stimulus and the response. Having said that, it's easier said than done, right? When it's the end of the day and it's bath time, he's not getting out or he's not getting in and he's completely ignoring me. The other day I was like, oh, like I could feel it. I could feel it coming up. And it was just like, oh, geez. But yeah, yeah. There's another funny cartoon from when I was studying psychotherapy where a, a dad and his son are wrestling in the bathtub. And he says, you're only making it more difficult on your future therapist. And, and just two book recommendations. One is by John Kabat-Zinn. I'm forgetting the title, but it's about raising a conscious family. We've actually yeah. used their dinner prayer for the last 14 years in our family. Oh, and then there's one by Thich Nhat Hanh. I think it's called Joyfully Together. And one of the recommendations in there is around having a breathing room. And it's for the parents because the kids aren't having trouble being kids. They're good at being kids. The, the parents need the time out because we're the ones that need the break and to recenter. They have no trouble being children. That's true. That's the thing I try to remember is like, he's just doing what he's doing, right? No. He's testing boundaries. He's pushing the boundaries. And all of that. And then also it's just like hilarious how I'm just like seeing myself in him. Like I behave like as a 34 year old adult, kind of like him. It's absurd when I see it. So it gives me a little bit more compassion for him. Thanks for joining me for today's Mindful Fire Spark. To listen to the full episode, just click the link in the show notes wherever you're listening to this. If you enjoyed today's episode, I invite you to hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this. This just lets the platforms know you're getting value from the episodes and you want to be here when I release additional content. If you're ready to start your Mindful Fire journey, go to mindfulfire.org start and download my free envisioning guide. In just 10 minutes, this guide will help you craft a clear and inspiring vision for your life. Again, you can download it for free at mindfulfire.org start. Thanks again, and I'll catch you next time on the Mindful Fire podcast. <music>